Today I'm taking a look at a topic that to date I don't know that I've talked very much about. It's not that I've kept it hidden, it's just that there's not been really any reason to talk about it, but I saw several connections between a few different things, so I want to talk about them today. The first is I'm looking at a book, I'm going to work through a book, it's called A Second Chance, for you, for me, and for the rest of us. It's by Catherine Hoke. It was sent to me by John Wall over at the podcast Marketing Over Coffee. He had mentioned this book that he had a giveaway of it and I've been doing some I had been doing some coaching work at a local prison and so that's what this book is all about. Well, it's about it's about an entrepreneurial program in a prison or in several prisons through an organization called The Five Ventures. So anyway, John sent me a copy of the book. I read it, and then some scandalous news was published by one news source that I can find, the Daily Beast, alleging some levels of sexual harassment against Hoke and some other salacious things going on at the organization that she founded. Now... This book was published by The Domino Project, which is headed up by Seth Godin. Uh, The Five Ventures and Catherine Hoke has also been mentioned a lot by Brad Feld. I emailed Seth Godin, not that he's a personal friend, but that his email's on the internet and he has a reputation for responding to people. And he responded to me, or responded to some questions I had about, you know, what's going on, what can you tell me, etc., I didn't ask for any details, but I was just kind of along the lines of, I'm really conflicted. I wanted to, do, I've read this book. I wanted to do a podcast on it, but I'm having a hard time promoting the principles in this book if all the stories, you know, if this scandal is true. And, and basically, the gist of what I got back from him was it's not all true. And he essentially, you know, stands behind the book. And then I've continued to see Brad Feld who's a venture capitalist out of Boulder, continuing to talk about Defy. And so after a lot of back and forth, I decided I'm just going all in on this book. And I'm just putting those caveats out there. In the beginning, should someone get really interested in this and then come to find out later that there's this, again, there's an article in the Daily Beast. It's pretty easy to find. But again, I could not find any other news articles that, anywhere that talked about these accusations. So in a little bit, I'll get to the important messages in this book. However, as I thought about this book, I wondered where did my interest in this come from to begin with? So that interest being in the prison system, law enforcement, incarceration, all those kinds of things. And so I realized that my interest in this area surrounded some of my original inklings and feelings and just maybe like little seeds planted and that that started to grow around this whole issue of ownership that I'm so passionate about. So it it was all sparked back in 2010 or so, if you were working with me at Red Hat at the time. This is something I was exploring and doing on the side. And it started with some break-ins in our neighborhood. And so there have been a series of robberies in the neighborhood where I live. 
and the sheriff's office had come to do a presentation at the local elementary school and I attended it to just kind of find out what was going on. And at the end, there was a table in the back with different brochures. And on this one table was this brochure for something called the Citizens Academy. I have no idea why I picked this thing up. I've never had an interest in law enforcement before. If anything, I was a little intimidated by law enforcement. Uh, <laughs> I spent some time in Massachusetts. And the state police there is just very intimidating. I was never pulled over anything, but I just, the sight of one of those blue cars just kind of put me on edge. So anyway, no real experience with law enforcement, no experience with guns, no experience with uh, any of that stuff. And I picked up this brochure and started looking at it. At the time I was looking for ways to kind of broaden my horizons and uh, working remotely. So looking for ways to get out of the house so I signed up for this thing just kind of on a lark. So in the Citizens Academy, it was a 13-week program where you learned about different aspects of the sheriff's office. Now, I'm not totally naive here. I realize that in putting on this program, the sheriff's office is putting their best foot forward. Um, in fact, one of the sergeants that was part of the class that led part of the class that I attended ended up being fired from the sheriff's office a few years later because of some improprieties. So it, while they, you know, they were putting their best foot forward in terms of the organization, I have, I'm under no illusions that there are um, bad law enforcement. There's bad law enforcement out there. I think my senses, it varies depending on where you live uh, the city, the country, the state, all kinds of different dynamics. So I'm not pretending for a, for a second that law enforcement is perfect. I will just say that my experience in Washington County, Oregon, was a positive one. And I, again, I realize there are some warts. But the program I attended was like top rate. So it exposed, it was 13 weeks, I believe it was three hours, one night a week, exposes to all areas of the sheriff's office and what they did. There were special sessions on use of force and the complexities of the decisions there. Um, other notable memorable ones are like hostage negotiation um, with some involvement, I think with like FBI hostage negotiators, detectives, crime scenes, murder investigations, uh, DUII, in the state of Oregon, DUII is driving under the influence of intoxicants. So it's broader than just alcohol. Anyway, that was the, for some reason, that session really set me off and really made me angry when I saw the level of damage caused and irresponsibility and death. And then just as I went through the program, just to see all of the service that this organization puts towards the community that I live in to make it safe. And what dawned on me in the process of all this was that I wasn't doing a dang thing to do my part except paying my taxes. And so uh, this is where I started getting this first sense of like, what could I do? How could I get more involved? How could I help in some way? Uh, at the time, so this is 2010 or 11, 
that puts me at I'm I'm not sure I'm doing any good. Let, let's just say I was early 40s, 41, 42, something like that. And so not usually the time of life that people are pursuing a career like this. And I was just, again, continually drawn to it and the the positive force for good that it was in my community. Anyway, long story short on all of this, I'll try to keep this short, was in looking for ways to volunteer and get more experience and get involved, I became an intern at the jail. That was typically something for like a college, a university student studying criminal justice, but I was able to get in as an intern there. I became secretary to a law enforcement chaplains organization that gave me some more exposure to actually the sheriff and other fairly high-ranking people in the state. And in the course of all this, I also found out that there was a reserves program. So you could become a fully-fledged Washington County Sheriff's deputy. Everything was paid for, covered, and the training, the equipment, all that stuff. And in return, you had to volunteer 20 hours a week. And so I actually applied and went out for I was I applied to be a a jail reserve deputy in 2011 and then a patrol reserve deputy in 2013. And it was a fascinating process. The one of the hardest parts of the process was the physical fitness test which I wanted to crush. And so I went did a series of uh workouts over a period of time to prepare for that. And I passed that. There's also a written test. And the long and short of this is that the jail program got canceled. The patrol of the jail reserves program got canceled the particular year that I applied. And the reserves deputy program, I went all the way through the panel interview and then did not make it any further and was able to find out that there had been 80 applicants for six or eight spots, which told me that my chances of doing this and get it in were pretty slim, especially considering that if there was anybody that I was competing against anyone with any prior law enforcement experience or military experience compared to this middle-aged guy with a background in IT <laughs> testing software, I don't think I stood a chance. So after that, I hung it up. I was disappointed but I was also thankful for just the different things that it exposed me to. So I spent a fair amount of time in the jail volunteering there, saw all kinds of stuff, um, all kinds of things. I also went on a few patrol ride-alongs. So that's where you sit in the passenger seat of a patrol car and you do an entire shift. I've also done a few of those with Portland police as well. Again, completely eye-opening. And I recommend that if you're interested in this or you want an, like, an, an up-close look at what a police officer deals with, that you go on one too. Another reason I speculate that I didn't get in as a into the training program to be a reserve deputy is that I wasn't committed to changing careers. This is one of those inklings. This is one of those things that I was simply just following because it interested me. And half the time, I wasn't sure why I was so interested in it. I just knew that I was. And so I followed it. 
So I wasn't committed to changing careers. I may, I don't know that I said that directly in the interview, but it was clear from my background that, you know, I didn't have a background in law enforcement. Now, they positioned the program as a way that this was a great way to figure out if law enforcement was a fit for you. I think I may have said that in the interview. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the things that disqualified me too. So in terms of being an intern in the jail and being in the environment, I got really comfortable. Comfortable is kind of a funny word in that environment. So you're always wearing a distress pager. I didn't necessarily have to be with another deputy, but they were always just tried to be on guard, even if it started to feel comfortable. But by comfortable, I mean, so being in the pod housing unit. So the units are all, um, the housing units are pods, which means that the cells are on the perimeter of this room. There's like six or seven of them at the Washington County Jail. And in the middle is where the deputy sits. And so when there's out time, all the inmates in this particular pod as long as they're not in segregation, which means they're like, can't come out with the other people. They're all just wandering around and sitting at tables, playing cards or uh, watching TV or whatever. And occasionally coming up to the desk where I was sitting in the middle of the pod with the deputy to ask questions or request hair clippers or whatever the case might be. Sometimes there were people in these pods that have been in the news. Uh, some of them had done some pretty horrific things. Uh, like people that had been charged with murder, uh, murder, and then some. The most disturbing portion for me was probably the medical unit. So in the medical unit, you would have people that were detoxing from drugs or alcohol. You know, maybe they were arrested for possession or arrested for driving under the influence. And so if that's kind of a regular part of their lifestyle, all of a sudden they don't have it. And so they had detoxing from alcohol could take days. Um, also in this unit where people with um, mental difficulties, uh, as well as people trying to harm themselves. So those people are on very stringent watches. It's been several years and I can't remember, but that we would, we would do rounds like multiple times an hour to check on these people. But I guess, in the, I guess the takeaway from this is there was a certain level of familiarity in the sense that these are people. These are people just like me. Some of them, uh, that's kind of a stretch, I suppose. But there were others that I just realized that, wow, given a different upbringing or, or environment and some different decisions, and I could have ended up in the same place as as them. So it gave me, I suppose, a new level of appreciation, a certain level of empathy, but there's a tension here. It didn't mean that I it was excusing what they had done or looking past it, but it's something there's a there's a huge difference between seeing something in the newspaper or TV and actually having a social interaction, even if it's very short, with someone that's been charged with a really heinous crime, that in the moment that you're talking to them comes across as just a very 
straightforward, normal, friendly person. So what these experiences prepared me for was a almost an uncanny comfort level with going into a prison. And so then hearing about Defy Venture and Cat Hoax through Brad Feld and his blog and his experiences of going into San Quentin in California, uh, that's kind of raised my awareness and then got me to wondering as I was getting into coaching a couple years, could I do, could I combine coaching with some kind of rehabilitation work in the prison or jail setting? By the way, there's an interesting distinction between a prison and a jail. I don't know if this is the same in every state, but in the state of Oregon, a jail is somewhere where you go when you have been accused of a crime, but not convicted of a crime. Or if you've been convicted of a crime and your sentence is less than a year, you are in jail. Once you've been sentenced or convicted of a crime and sentenced, then you go to prison. So people often use those terms interchangeably, but they're not the same. So this all brings me back to why my interest in this book. So some of the key topics in this book that I think are universal and can apply in just about any environment, forgiveness, personal ownership, shame, hypocrisy, justice, the desire for revenge, things that can come up in our normal everyday lives, even if you're not incarcerated. And again, I wonder, would I have been interested in this book? Would I have been able to combine coaching in a prison setting if I had never picked up that brochure about the Citizens Academy and if I hadn't attended it and if I hadn't just pursued this thing that kind of interested me in a way that I couldn't quite explain? So now I'm just going to read certain sections from this book. Again, the book is A Second Chance for You, for Me, and for the Rest of Us by Catherine Hoke, and just kind of riff on the different things that I see. So starting on page three, this book is the story of America's most unforgivable people redeeming their lives and achieving success. If they can live fulfilling lives after their bad decisions cost them decades, so can you. And I think as I read these two things, you'll, you'll see some of the resonance between coaching and the work I do there around helping people find fulfillment and meaning in their lives. There's also a really interesting uh, Netflix documentary in this called 13th that I'll link to. That's eye-opening, but it ties into this quote on page 38. The U.S. leads the world in mass incarceration. With only 5% of the world's population, we have 22% of the world's incarcerated population. And we fail miserably at rehabilitation with a recidivism, I can never say this word, with a recidivism rate of 76.6%. The cost to taxpayers is stupid. In 2017, Californians pay more than $75,000 to incarcerate one person for just one year. By comparison, Defy costs $500 to $2,000 per person per year, and more than 95% of our grads keep their freedom. So what she's saying there is that the people that go through this entrepreneurial program with Defy Ventures, 
95% of them don't go back to prison compared to the normal rate of people that do go back after visiting prison, which is 76.6% in 2017. She has a term that, that she's coined for the folks that are in this program, and she calls them EITs, which stands for Entrepreneur in Training. And they go through a series of classes and exercises and different things. One of the big themes in this book and in Cat Hoth's work is taking responsibility, apologizing, and then the notion of forgiveness. And she's really hard on these guys in kind of a funny way. So on page 77, the chapter is titled Apologies and Responsibilities. And she's talking, there's there's kind of a dialogue here of a conversation between her and, and one of the EITs. I caught my case 15 years ago. Oh, really? You caught it? Like catching a cold? The EIT gives me a cold look. Sort of. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. But I guess it was meant to be. Everything happens for a reason. Hmm, let's break that down. Tell me about your crime. And so then he goes on to talk about how he was uh, the getaway driver and that the intention of his partner was simply to rob the people and, quote, take back what was ours. And in the end, the guy goes in while he's waiting in the car and kills the person. And so the driver of the car is essentially an accomplice accomplice to the crime. And so the partner, the guy that went into the house, snitched to the police and got 15 years. And then the EIT who stayed loyal to the street code got 20 to life and was charged for murder or was charged with murder for being the getaway driver. So he's 20, he's serving 25 years and has seen the parole board twice, and his parole's been denied. Of course, and he's also really mad because his buddy got 10 years less. So this is what Kat says to him. I can see the injustice in this. I can see why you're so mad about being here. But what if I told you that the way you're framing this story to yourself and to others, including the parole board, is the main reason you're still in prison? If there was another way to truthfully tell the story and this could lead to your freedom, would you want to hear it? The EIT gets half curious. The story we tell ourselves about what happened is sometimes more important than what actually happened. You're telling yourself the victim version, which keeps you in the victim's shoes. Even though it's a true version, it keeps you feeling sorry for yourself and mad at the world. If you want to stay in that place, keep telling yourself, you caught, you quote, caught this case and we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is like, this, this is like a reoccurring theme in my work with clients as well as in my own self work and in my reading. And it's this whole idea of what is the story you're telling yourself. I keep coming back to this book by Steve Chandler called The Story of You. Now, I recommended it to, I don't know how many people I recommend it to. One person read it and liked it and then didn't like it so much. And I confess that I bought the audio version and listened to it fairly rapidly. And I would agree that in some places it does drag a little bit. But if you can get through the whole thing, there are just some really, really valuable moments that I would recommend that reading. I, th- I, think, it, I think it is a good book overall. 
at the end of this chapter, I'm skipping a little bit. I hear, quote, everything happens for a reason every day. Usually it's code for, God must have wanted this for me. I spar with the EITs over this. Oh, really? You think God wanted you to hurt that man? Or for you to be away from your kids for all these years? I actually do believe that most things happen for a reason. Usually the reason we go to prison is because we're committing crimes, not because prison is our destiny. If we don't take responsibility, we can't apologize with sincerity. It's rare that a man will find parole if he cannot make take responsibility for his actions and meaningfully apologize for them. But there are so many payoffs for keeping ourselves in the victim seat. And this is where she kind of makes it real, kind of universally. So here are some questions she asked that are, I think are worth, really worth thinking about. What's stopping you from, make, from, quote, making parole and getting out of your own, quote, prison? Are you taking responsibility or are you more comfortable cruising in the victim's seat? How can you change the narrative so you get to freedom? Again, back to this whole idea of what's the story you're telling yourself? One of the things that I've been really struck with is I've studied this topic, which is uh, mostly, we read books about it, essentially. And I have talked to some of the adults. So in the state of Oregon, they don't call them in prison. They don't call them inmates. They call them adults in custody. And some of the adults in custody take issue with that term and think that they should be called other things. I had an, I've had some interesting conversations with them about that. One of the things that is, I think, needs some really serious consideration is once someone has gone to prison and done their time, they have, that's essentially their restitution for what they did. In other words, they have made their, their wrong right. They have, they have paid the price for it. They have made amends. And yet the way that the whole system works is you're kind of screwed forever. So if you've been convicted of a felony, even if you've done your 20 years or 30 years or whatever your sentence was, when you get out, you're still a felon. You go to apply for a job, and there's always that question on the job application that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Or you go to apply for a, you know, a rental application to rent a place. Most likely you're going to do a background check. And again, criminal history comes up there again. It's a real catch-22. I think she makes a really poignant, interesting case on page 104 in this chapter on forgiveness. Quote, If I told you I was coming over to your house with three friends, all of whom had committed murder, I'm guessing you would quickly disinvite me. Yet 80% of our country claims to believe in a God who forgives all things and in scriptures that are written predominantly by three murderers, David, Paul, and Moses. How is it that most Americans model their lives by the teachings of these old school murderers, but we permanently discard people who commit murder? And so there's a lot of mindset stuff that she works on with these guys because a lot of them don't feel like they deserve forgiveness. So she's, this is kind of taken again from a, a dialogue. 
Is there any number of deeds, even if you lived your life as a saint for every day since the murder, that could result in your earning the forgiveness? No. Not one of us will ever make up for the pain we have created in the world. We all hurt people and ourselves. I hate how I've hurt so many people. I don't deserve their forgiveness. I would like to receive it. What can I do? I can't change my past. All I can do from this day forward is learn my lesson and live with meaning and purpose. I can live a life of love and service. That's what I'm doing here with you. It's why I started Defy. I promised God that if I ever got a second chance, I would spend my life pouring forgiveness and love into people who have screwed up like I have. If your victim was an emotionally healthy person, do you think they would want you tortured for the rest of your days, which only brings out evil and hatred in us and makes the world worse? Or do you think they would want you living every day to make this world a better place? So the whole idea behind Second Chance is that this is the second organization like this that she started, that Catherine Hoke started. She started one in Texas before the Five Ventures with another organization, I don't remember the name, and was sexually involved with some of the inmates after they got out. And that was, anyway, basically she had to resign from that whole thing that she had started there and was just a very, very humiliating experience. Which kind of, I mentioned at the top, the awkwardness and discomfort with what do I do with this book that's about second chances and whatever when, again, according to this one article, she has, some could argue, oh my goodness, is she going to be asking for a third chance now? So I don't know what to do with all that. But again, I think there's just some really good content in this book that's worth considering. I thought this was interesting later on in the dialogue. If you don't forgive, who is in control? They are. If you forgive, do you give yourself the opportunity to transform your hustle and your future? Yes. If you forgive, are you giving yourself the possibility of moving forward with peace and purpose and maybe even joy? Yes. All right, then. You know what time it is. And then she goes through this process of them forgiving themselves for what they've done. So moving forward to page 145, there's a chapter here called Moving Forward, Reinventing Yourself. Most people don't change a thing because change, transformation, reinvention, takes deep courage, humility, commitment, effort, and time. I would also insert in a different story. It takes admitting that we didn't have it figured out the first, the last time around. It involves finding the time to recover and embracing the process. It involves asking for help. It involves being vulnerable. It involves a decent possibility of failing all over again. What does it mean to reinvent yourself? The U.S. calls itself a free country. Yet I know plenty of free people who act as if they've been sentenced to life without parole. When I speak at companies, I ask, quote, How many of you are living your dream, your dream job? You feel fulfilled. Maybe 10% of the people in the audience raise their hands. And yes, it's pretty awkward because their bosses are in the room. Why only 10%? Perhaps they hate their jobs that feel trapped by their salaries or just having a few more years until retirement. Or maybe they hate their spouses and say divorce is not an option and claim that it's, quote, better for the kids if they stay in a hateful, apathetic marriage. Or maybe they hate their cities and hate being single but won't consider moving because home is safe and easy and just the way it's always been. 
classic material for coaching in terms of being stuck and not having any options or, and feeling that way and feeling that there's just no way out because it would be too scary to do something different. Then on page 158, she talks about the idea of fulfillment and meaning, which again, are topics at the core of the work I do. If you died today, why would your life matter? The rich CEO in front of me can't believe I'm asking him that question. He's fumbling nervously. He's not satisfied with his answer or his life. Whenever I've asked this question before, the best answers all shared one theme. Mattering doesn't come from what they've done or achieved for themselves. It doesn't come from the dollars accumulated or the companies built or sold. Mattering comes from what they do for others. Service. Hiring someone who wasn't given a chance anywhere else. Sacrificing for their daughter so that she can attend the college of her dreams. Moving across the country for his wife so she can pursue her promotion. It's why so many executives get addicted to Defy. They matter every minute when they are sharing and contributing love and care and hope into my guys. I thought this was a good section on fear of failure, page 165. Is the truth that you truly can't afford it, or is your fear of failure controlling your future? I've never done anything else, and I'm terrified of failing. I don't want to disappoint my parents, and keeping my parents proud is more important than being fulfilled. What's the real tape playing in your head? I wrote down the tape of self-limiting beliefs that was playing in my head, and they were far uglier on paper. Then I even confessed my beliefs to someone, and once I was out of the closet... Well, I had to take action. I highly recommend that process of writing down your limiting beliefs. There is something magic that happens when you put them on paper. Then she continues. My amazing mentor, Seth Godin, wrote a blog post called, How Do I Get Rid of the Fear? This is what Godin writes. Alas, this is the wrong question. The only way to get rid of the fear is to stop doing things that might not work, to stop putting yourself out there, to stop doing work that matters. No, the right question is, How do I dance with the fear? Fear is not the enemy. Paralysis is the enemy. Or I might add to that lack of action. And then she goes on a little bit later. Fear is human and normal and even good. Failure is no fun, but failure failure isn't the end. Some failure is generally required if we really want to get something great. If you're waiting to get to a point where you aren't scared anymore, you'll never arrive. This was good a little bit later about not having enough experience. Don't you think I need a few years of real work experience first? And then she says, good experience rarely rarely hurts. The only problem with needing more experience is that it's really similar to the excuse of needing more money. When you take a risk to start a new hustle, you'll never have enough money or enough experience. So she mentioned a little earlier the notion of, you know, being afraid of, what other people will think or pleasing other people at, you know, and sacrificing our own fulfillment. She says on page 168, the biggest deal killer isn't what other people say about us though. It's what we tell ourselves about what they say to us. A little further on, she says, you decide if you want your life to be ruled by fear of what others say about you, or if you're the CEO of your new life. If you let them win, you're choosing to lock yourself up and give them the keys. The world needs your generous hustle. You need your generous hustle to feel alive. 
And then the last section I thought was noteworthy was she talks about quitting. Page 188. Why do people say quitting isn't an option when it always is? Defy is just like my high school wrestling days. I was the only girl. When I started, I could barely do 10 consecutive push-ups or one pull-up. Every day at practice, the boys would beat me up so badly that I was thankful to have the entire girls' locker room to myself once the torture was over. I would cry, looking over my bruises and feeling completely defeated. I wanted to quit nearly every single day. I just chose every day not to quit. And then a little later on, she says, Refusing to quit is different from wanting to quit. It's so normal to want to quit. That's okay. Expect it. There were any other number of lessons and encouragements and admonitions, more information like background on how the criminal justice system works and incarceration and all the disadvantages um, that people that have been incarcerated face. If you want to know more about this, again, the book is A Second Chance for you, for me, and for the rest of us. Another really, really good book about the prison system and how people end up there and what and just all that. And then also Redemption, coming as a result, is a book called Riding My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. And it's by Shaka Signor. The last name is spelled S-E-N-G-H-O-R. And if you're a podcast listener and you want to learn more about what it's like to be inside a prison, there's a really, really fascinating podcast called Ear Hustle that's produced inside San Quentin, the prison in the Bay Area in California. They explore some of these similar issues as well as just day-to-day, what is it like to live in prison? So there you go. Something a little different today. A little uh, behind the curtain in terms of my interest in coaching in prison and how that came about. And then some other encouragements that I think can apply to anyone in Catherine Hoag's book. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates. <laughs>